Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the gorgeous weekend that we've had and the many blessings that we've received from your hand. We give you praise, especially, Father God, for um, the opportunity to come before you and lay before you all our cares and our concerns and our worries. We lift up our nation, Lord, and you know our concerns for it. We pray about the whole world because we know a lot and our nation does affects the world. And we just pray, Father God, for wisdom. We pray for strength. We pray for our leaders to have clarity and and vision that is from you and not from themselves and not from their pet peeves. We think of the things that are going on in our government and uh, this bill that has that wants to be passed, and that there's other things that are going on, Lord, and, and, and people's lives are being affected radically. We just leave that all in your hand, and we're so grateful that you're the sovereign Lord, and that your word tells us not to fear, and that we can have that perfect peace inside of our hearts, no matter what goes on in our world. We praise you. Thank you, Father, for all those who defend our peace, that defend us in our streets, that keep us safe. We give you thanks and praise for them. We pray also, too, for our denomination right now as we're at a very critical spot in it, Lord, and especially our role with the denomination. Give our board, our elders and deacons board, wisdom as the consistory convenes and mulls over what this means for our congregation and how we are to both best um, be a witness and a ministry to our world. I pray especially, too, Father God, for those in our congregation who are struggling, those whom we know that are uh, locked in, both in a nursing home who maybe can't get out as much as they want to or can move around. We think of especially our sister Lucille and Kay. We think of Leanna. We think of Howard. We think of Betty. We think of Mary and Joyce and their back problems. I pray also too, Lord, for Don and healing for his back. For those that we know that are bound by addiction, Ryan and Jordan and um, also Eric and Ricky and for Matt, um, Lord, all these people that are under the burden, Lord, of the, the, the monkey on their back that continues to pull on them. Lord, we pray for freedom for them that they can find the freedom in Christ. We pray also for a sister whose father is getting a lung resection this week because of the cancer and they can remove the cancer fully. We pray also too for a a fellow who is in Stillwater, Oklahoma that's going through chemo treatments and I pray for healing. I pray also too for the family this week that we minister to through the funeral. I pray for the Stillings family that you'll watch over them and bring them comfort and peace. But with some of the people in our church that are still struggling with uh, the grief of the loss of their loved ones. We think of Carol, and we pray for them. We think of the Brown family, Lord. We just lift them all up before you. We pray also, too, Father God, for a couple that got married yesterday. I just pray for Lyndon and Lindy as they move into the future together, that you'll bless their lives together, and they'll have wonderful life of ministry and hope and joy in their hearts. And now, Father God, too, we bring up others that maybe we didn't get to express in our cards. Um, We pray for um, the Riffle family and the loss of the father-in-law. I just pray for um, Vic's uh, wife and family, Lord, that they grieve. Just be with them also. 
Father, here are some of the words of people that we know that are struggling right now. And now, Father, God, as we come to you, speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a convention of Southern Baptist preachers, and these preachers were really strong believers. And they went to this convention together, all from the same town. And the instructor at the preacher's conference said, Now I want you all to think about a sin that you have, that you struggle dealing with. And what I'd like you to do at lunchtime, share it with your partners. Well, as they drove together to this conference, they also sat together. And the one preacher said, Well, i got to be honest with you, but... When I get to a town that I don't know anybody about, I like to go to a liquor store and just pound it down and get really drunk. The second guy said, well, to be honest with you, I try to find a city that has a gambling casino. And I'm hoping that I can go and play a little jack, blackjack and whatnot. And the third preacher is kind of quiet. And the both of them said, well, what is your sin? He said, well, I like to gossip and I can't wait to get back to town and tell everybody. <laughs> Well, we know, we can laugh at that, but you know, sin John takes pretty seriously. As we're looking at the epistle of John, the first book of the John, we remember that he's battling these Gnostics. And Gnosticism, of course, comes from the dualism that Plato had put out there, that your body, you can do whatever you want with your body, but with your mind, as long as it's pure, everything is okay. And John is battling because he sees the light and the darkness very clearly. He sees what sin has done to his congregation and what these false teachings are doing to affect the people in his congregation. And so John comes right at them, full bold. First, he says, of course, they didn't believe that Jesus came in the flesh. They think he was a phantom and that he couldn't have come in the flesh because matter was evil. But John says that's not true. God made this earth and it's good. It's under the curse of God, but it's still good. And Jesus came in the flesh. We felt him. We touched him. And he went on to speak about that in the first chapter. And then he says, if you say that you don't have any sin or you don't sin, you're deceiving yourself. You're calling God a liar. And that you need to confess your sin before Almighty God. And that we have this advocate, Jesus Christ, who goes on our behalf and pleads our case to God. But then he says also that there are things throughout these scriptures that you are to know and to know that you're truly a Christian. You see the word know, Gnosis, in the Greeks means to know. And Gnostics believe they knew it all. And John is saying, no, 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 you don't know it all. In fact, you're missing a good part of what the gospel is really about. He said, first, if you really want to know, and these Christians, you know, Satan is a great worker of confusion, and they were confused. They didn't really know if they were saved. And John says to them, and 40 times he uses the word no because he wants them to know definitively. And at the end of the book, he explains why he wrote this book is that we would know that we're saved, that we have this assurance. And so John says, here's, a, here's some tests for you. Number one, do you really have a desire to keep God's commandment and live God's way? Number two, do you have brotherly love? If you don't have the love of God in you and you don't love your brother, then you're really probably missing and are not saved. And thirdly, how about your doctrine? What do you believe about Jesus Christ is so critically important. And one of the things that you need to understand that we're called by God to abide in Christ who died for us and saved us. And we're to remain in him as we live this life so we have the strength to battle. 
And then John goes on to talk about Jesus and his righteousness and that we are to be practicers of righteousness. And then last week we talked about the last times. And we're living in the last time right now between the time Jesus died and rose again until the time in which he comes. And John is warning them that everybody has a last time. And that there's going to come a last time and there's going to be Antichrist, Antichrist. And there's a spirit of Antichrist running around right now that wants to do away with Christ. And John says, if you really want to walk and obey the commandments and love your brothers, you need to understand God's love and abide in that love. And that's when John now picks up. You see, John has been looking at Jesus for the future. But now John wants us to look at Christ right now and what he does did for us right now. And that's why we come to our passage where it says in 4 and 5, Whosoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he has manifest to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. And what John is speaking about is that he is speaking about the presence of what Christ did for us on the cross. That he came to take away. And there's two things Jesus did on the cross. One he explains here. He was manifest to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. So that we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that secondly that the power of sin doesn't have control. Which he's going to talk about later on. But first he talks to us about what sin is. Notice what he calls it. He calls it lawlessness. Lawlessness is a rebellion. A defilement. It's a desire not to do what God wants us to do. It's an unrighteousness. And John defines this as this lawlessness or this defilement or defiance to God. And he talks about this inner nature that we have. Now, if you understand about sin in the Bible, there's two sin, two different ways of sin. There's one is the capital S, is what's going on inside of our heart. That we have a rebellious nature to God. Ever since the fall of mankind and Adam and Eve fell, we have this curse and we have this old man inside us that rebels against God. Doesn't want to do what God wants us to do. And because of that root, the fruit of our lives is that we do sinful acts. We want, and then we define sin, of course, all the time with the word sin in the letter I is I want to do it my way. I want to be in control of my destiny. I am in control of who I am. And we see that even in little children. I remember Sandy was pulled over with one of our kids because they were popping around in the back seat of the car. They weren't belted in. Well, I was listening about a dad who had the same problem. And he said to his daughter, if you don't get in your seat, I'm going to pull the car over and give you a spanker. Now, some of us have threatened that before. I know that. And she's, finally, she put on the buckle, sat in her seat. And then about 10 seconds later, she said, but I'm still standing up in my mind. That's the rebellion that's in our hearts. And John tells us that Jesus came for us to overcome that. And that inside of us, we have that rebellious nature. And the overway to come is to be received by Jesus Christ, accepted, and that we also abide in him. But that old nature, that old sinful nature is still inside of us. That we battle with, with the spirit of God in our hearts. When you came to know Christ, you received the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you could ever come to know Christ. And he resides in you. But there's inner battle. Paul speaks about this in Romans 7. He says, the very things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I don't want to do, I do. What help is there? Jesus Christ. 
And that's the battle that goes on in our hearts each and every week we have, each and every day. There's that desire to follow God. Westminster Confession defines what sin is. Sin is the want to conformity unto or transgression against the law of God. We don't want to do it God's way. We want to do it ourselves. And so what we see is that the world, this is why it shouldn't surprise us when the world wants to push God out of the picture. I was watching the other day a little thing about um, creation with my grandchildren for a few minutes. And there was no mention of God. They were just talking about how it was formed and there was no mention of this that trying to push it out of our lives. And you see, the other thing is they don't want to come to understand that there is actually a devil that's involved here. And the origin of the devil was an angel who rebelled against God, didn't want to do it God's ways and wanted to take control. And we can see that on and on again in our own personal lives as we deal with it. And John says to us here, he says to us, Christ came to take away our sins. And what he's showing them, the picture of what God did way back in the Old Testament with the Ungalizomai, they call it, which means the, the gospel before the gospel ever came to earth, God showed it to the Israelites through their ceremonial system. And there's two things that happen there. Number one, the priest once a year in the Day of Atonement would go in there and he'd take the blood of a slain lamb and he'd sprinkle it on the top of the um, uh, uh, basic Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark is the Ten Commandments that we all break. And what God shows us here is that Christ took, oh, and when they slay the lamb and they dip the blood and they sprinkle it on top of the angels that are over the uh, Ark of the Covenant, it's covering over our acts of sin that we commit to the Ten Commandments that God has laid out. Then he goes and gets another ram and outside pronounces on that ram our sin and they let it go out into the wilderness signifying the alienation that sin does that creates a distance between us and God. And that, that, that goat gets killed by some wild animal. And this is what God was showing the children of Israel. And right now, John is talking about this lawlessness in our life that want to do our own way. And that we see that Satan is a toothless tiger. This is one of the things that the Bible says he's a lion, he's a roaring lion. But what he does is he alienates us and scares us and tries to make us think that he's more powerful than God. And he's not. In fact, his virus of fear continues to try to draw people into sin. And the Bible here says that Jesus took away those sins. We don't have to listen to him continuing to harass us and remind us of our sinfulness. It's been forgiven. And you see, that's where John then comes in the second part. And he gives us a warning. He said, whoever abides in him does not sin. And whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, and the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose, the Son of Man, God, 
has, was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. And here John is warning us that the devil is going to creep up on us. He's going to try to work us. He's going to go over us and try to take us on. But to realize that God sent his son to overpower and give us the strength to overpower Satan in our own personal lives. And here we see it as we hear the logic is clear John is saying the devil started way back when he rebelled against God in heaven. He now is trying to lead every Christian away from God. He's a rebel. He doesn't want us to be part of it. And he's a destroyer. He can't alienate us. He can't annihilate us, I mean. But he is a destroyer to try to break our relationship down with God. And what he does is he does like Hitler did in World War II, where he... Basically, when he was losing and he was retreating, he gave the officer to scorch and burn everything that they were leaving so that the, the enemy had no way to be able to grab anything and use it in the fight against the German war, a German, German soldiers. And you see, this is what John speaks about. He says he's a scorcher. He hurts us. And, and what we have to do is understand that he tries to confuse people and give them nothing to work with. I was at Panera the other day and I was talking to a father. And his five-year-old asked him a question. And it, he said, I'm, I, I almost had to pull over the side of the road. He shocked me. He said, and one of the things this reminded me of, how do I prepare myself to help my son and my three-year-old daughter, five-year-old son, three-year-old daughter, how can I help them to understand what's right and what's God's way and what's wrong in this world? He said, because the little boy said to him, Dad, what's adultery? <laughs> he said, and I'm trying to think, okay, how can I help this five-year-old by not telling him anything graphic to help him understand how wrong this is and, and it's not God's way? And he said, as I was driving, I said, well, you know, son, can you think how would you feel if daddy all of a sudden didn't come home anymore and he spent time with another lady other than your mother and you'd only get to see him once in a while and he really liked this other lady and he would kiss on her and stuff. He said, dad, that's wrong. That's disgusting. He said, right. He said, that's what it is. And then he said, I started thinking about how am I going to communicate to my child in this world where sex is confusing. And they have children now that are being confused about their own physical manner. And he said to his son as they were going on and talking, he said, I thought, you know what, I'm going to have to bridge this gap too. Because he said, you know, God made you and he made you a boy. And God made your mom and your sister girls. And you're made in God's image. And this is the way he made you. And he wants you to enjoy what you have and to live as a good boy. And that your mom and your sister live as fun, loving girls. And he says, oh, yeah, dad. Oh, yeah. Well, folks, this is the world we're living in. And we have to prepare our grandchildren and children for this. Because this is what's coming at them. And John says to us, 
the one who sins is the devil right off the bat. And he's confusing. How many people do you know and do I know that are confused about their gender? That are confused about their sexuality? That are confused. I may get in trouble for this after what our city council did, but the key is we need to be upfront and faithful to what God has given to us in the Word of God. And our children need to be see that they're created in the image of God. They were made as a man or a woman. And that God loves them as they are. And not to change it. And so here we have it. John speaks to us and says, see, this is all confusion. Where did the confusion go? Satan confused even the garden. And that's why we're in the predicament we are in today. Because he said, did God really say that? Oh, he was just jealous of you getting to be as smart as he is. See the confusion? See the way he works? This is what's going on in our society today. And that we need to be very clear, biblically, of what God really wants for our children and our grandchildren to understand. And that he, they understand that, yes, there are going to be times that you're going to make mistakes. You sin. But we don't make a habit of it. In fact, the Bible says here, for he made him who is new no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. You see, that's what people don't understand. We as Christians right now are considered by God as righteous, his righteousness. He says it right there, become the righteousness of God in him. You are his righteousness. The day that came to Christ in heaven, God declared you justified. He declared you righteous, that you're ready for heaven. Not anything changed in you yet, but you're positionally called righteous because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And now, as you came to know Christ, his regeneration, his changing your heart, filling with you the Holy Spirit so you can say, I am God's child. He now is working out the practical righteousness in our lives so that we can live as Jesus wanted us to and that we can walk in the way that Christ wanted us to do and that we have the power to do that. You see, that's why we have the power to be able to obey the commandments of God. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, love the Lord your God. It's the first commandment. And the second is to love your brother as yourself. And we walk in those ways and we do those things because we have the power of Christ. And that Christ wants us to live that way and that righteousness. And it's because already we've been declared righteous. You are righteous before God. And I know sometimes you sit there and go, how could God see me that way? He does so because of what Christ did for you on the cross and because he's come into your heart and filled you with the Holy Spirit. This is something that's really lacking in our society. People don't understand this because sometimes they see Christians doing some of the same things that non-Christians are doing. But it's tragic because people are appalled. Why is it that the murder rate is up? Why is it theft so big? Why? It's because sin is driving their lives. And because they're living in the devil's world and in the devil's world and for themselves. This is why 5,000 students asked 10 years ago, would you cheat on a big exam? 50% of them said, yeah, they would if they could get a better grade. 30% of them said they would uh, even cover for a friend who did a, 
a terrible deed rather than tell the truth. 24% of them said that they would steal from their parents money. This was 10 years ago, folks. And you see those great commandments are being sponged out. And we know there's been sin in the world. Look at Bernie Matoff. He broke both laws of God. He stole from people. People who were looking for pension plans for the end of their life that now have nothing. I know some baseball players that lost a ton of money that they made in the pros because of his scam. And you can imagine how that happens. It doesn't happen just overnight. It happens with the little thing. I was reading an article that was very interesting about correcting children and why it's so important to correct them now because it will just grow big in their lives. It was from a man who walked across the United States from San Francisco all the way to New York. And they asked him, you know, what was the hardest thing? What bothered you the most? Was it the going up and down the hills or the mountains? Or He said, no. He said, what bothered me the most early on, and I realized it, is when sand would get in my shoes. And those little pieces of sand would work into my, and create sores in my feet. And that became the biggest problem that I had. And it's the same thing with the little things that you let go. They can become big things in our lives. I think about it. Gossip. It's really not that big of a thing we say. But in reality, Jesus says it's like murdering somebody. When you talk negative about somebody, you put them down, or you say a lie about them, you're basically killing their character. That's what it's like. You think about envy. I was in a situation not too long ago, and I saw it as plain as day that this one sister was so envious of her other sister, and she was working so hard on this great day this gal had to make her feel miserable, just to make her feel miserable because she was envious of her sister. And everybody could see it. But nobody addressed it. You see, John says to us, these little things that nag us can easily create tremendous crash in people's lives. I remember when I was in New Jersey, our church that we worked out of was built in 1866. And it was a beautiful old church. But one day, we had a blizzard. And there was probably about a foot, a foot and a half of snow on the roofs. And I was sitting in my office. I had walked, I think I had gotten my car out and finally found a way to get to the church. And as I was walk, working in my office, suddenly I heard a crash. And my office was here, and right next to it was a nursery. And I heard this crash, and... It sounded like something fell off the wall, and I knew nobody was in the building. So I went into the nursery, and here, the weight of the snow was on top of that roof. And that wall buckled. And the stuff on the wall fell off, and that's what the crash was. And when I got carpenters to come in and fix that wall, they showed me what was the problem. The little termites had made their way into the wood, 
and made that so weak. And then when the pressure of that snow and that weight came down on that roof, it finally brought it down and collapsed. And that's what the cause was. And you see, that's the thing in our own lives. John wants us to see that we want to live in this righteousness of Christ and not let the littlest thing go by us because those little things can easily cause disaster in our lives. And that's why John comes with us to wonder. Look what he says. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And here John, again, in his circular... You see, Paul, when he wrote, he wrote really Greek-like and, 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 and uh, Roman-like, where he was everything. John writes a different way. And he's circular more in his arguments. And he will go to another subject and then come back to... And that's what he's doing here. And he's saying to us, if you're born of God, you don't desire to sin. I remember this passage and it kind of threw me for a while. When I was in New Jersey, I had a young lady that we helped in her drug addiction. She was in a drug addiction and prostitution. She lived behind us in New Jersey. And I remember trying to help her out. And, and tragically, of course, um, she died of AIDS because of her addiction and because of her prostitution. But one of the things that happened was before she died... The last three months of her life, she lived clean. And she had given her life to Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, uh, through a couple of gals in our church who loved on her, and, and she finally uh, started wanting to get her life straight. And I had taken her to court. And, and But anyway, uh, after the court, I, she, I told her mom to take her to the doctor, and they found out she had not just pneumonia, but she had viral pneumonia that wound up taking her life because she had no uh, thing to fight off the um, sickness because she had AIDS. Well, her cousin called me one day about a year after this, and her cousin was a real strong believer. She tried to help Phyllis get her life straightened out. But she called me because her husband had gotten wrapped up in this cult figure in New York City, and he was giving 70% of his earnings for his business over to this cult leader. And she said, I can't even pay the bills. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And, and he's got them, him thinking all crazy things. In fact, it seems like when he comes home, he's in my face, and I've been taking care of the baby, and I've not been able to keep up with the house. And he's telling me that I'm a sinner, that I, I need to repent right now before him, and all this kind of stuff. And he says, you're not a Christian because you keep on sinning. And I'm like, wow. And so I went to the house to talk to him, and he and I got into it. And then after that, he said, I want you to come back because my leaders. And he brought two elders with him, and we argued. <laughs> and in the, part, in the middle of it, I'm saying, they were claiming they, didn't, they were sinless. They no longer sinned. And I said, well, how can you say that? Because you're arguing with me and yelling and shouting at me, and I'm yelling and shouting. We're both sinning. And he said, oh, no, because I'm speaking the truth and you're not. Well, I want to, never mind. I want to say what I thought. I've got really, no. So what happened is we discussed this passage. And they had me on the ropes a little bit because I didn't know this passage that well. And notice what John says. 
Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now, in the passage here, it looks like that we have to live sinless lives. Sinless lives. He believed that you could live the sinless life. His elders believed that they could live a sinless life. And it had me on the ropes, but I was telling them, well, why would John say in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins and that we have to, because, and if we say we don't sin, we're calling God a liar. How can that be? You take the text in the context and you work this thing out. And that's what I was doing. And then when I got back to my office, I read the passage and I looked at the commentators and the Greek. And the Greek says here, not that you don't sin, but that you don't keep up on habitual sinning. That you keep on doing what you're doing and never repent of it. Never, that's, not, that's what it's saying here. It's not saying that you could live the sinful, perfect life. And what they were doing is they were falsely, basically, because they didn't know the Greek. And their leader was saying that this is what it means and you better live it. And that's how he was manipulating them. That I could finally help them understand this passage. But they didn't want to believe me. Well, folks, John is saying to us. If we really love Christ and we have this habit, we need to address it and get rid of it because we really truly have the heart of Jesus in our lives. And that because we have Jesus in our hearts, we do not have this desire to do that anymore. We should be beginning to have, see more and more of our lives want to be free of sin. And we want to live in the righteousness that Christ has brought us into. And that um, the word there in, in the Greek, it's a present continuous tense of the verb, which means that you're continuing in this pattern of sin. That's what we're to keep away from. And we strive not to sin, but there are times when we do. And that we have to be mindful of what to do. And so John is saying here, Christ will give us the power to overcome. And it gives us the power to conquer our sin in the Holy Spirit as we trust him. This is why Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy begotten us again in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have the resurrection power to conquer our sin. And that as we abide in Christ and we get closer to him, we will overcome that sin. And I know some people say to me, boy, I'm, I have struggle with this sin. No. I understand that. I understand a sexual addiction. I understand greed addiction. I understand. I've dealt with people like this before. And what we need to do is trust in the power of Christ. And I say to them, all right, let's say if you're having a lustful thought and you're driving down the road. And all of a sudden a car gets in an accident in front of you. You keep on with that thought? No, you don't. You get out of your car and try to help the people that are hurt. And what we need to do and what the Bible tells us to do is that when we start feeling ourselves and be honest with ourselves that we're falling into that pattern again, that we take our minds and our will and we begin to think on, as Paul says in Philippians 4, think upon what is good what is wholesome, what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so instead of looking at that girl and lusting after her, you begin to pray for her and her family and that she walks with the Lord and get your mind off of the filth 
and get your mind into the things that are good and pleasing to God. I've even taught a wonderful exercise to make yourself mindful of this called spiritual breathing. It comes from Bill Bright in Campus Crusade for Christ. And what he says is, use spiritual breathing. When you feel yourself being tempted in sin, that you breathe out and you confess it. That's one of the most important things you can do right at that moment is say for what it is. It's sin. And I confess you, Lord, that I'm looking at this woman in the wrong way. And then intake, Lord, give me a mind that is right and pure. And let me pray for her and let me, so that your mind is off the evil and you put on the good. And then the way to do that is to blow out the sin. <sighs> And then inhale the good Lord and begin to talk about the positive things of Christ. I remember one guy was teaching this. I was weightlifting with him when I was in seminary and he was in college. And as we're walking down through the campus, this girl comes out with a clad outfit that was very risque. And all of a sudden I didn't notice it. And he's going, I go, are you having a heart attack? He said, oh no. He says, you see that girl over to the right? I was getting bad thoughts, so I started breathing. I said, oh, praise the Lord, he learned something. Well, that's the way to do it. It's conquering that. Because we've been born anew. We're new in Christ. And because of this new nature that we have, that Peter says, that John says, and that the devil doesn't want us to rely on, he says, rely on it. You're born from the seed of Christ is in you now. You can conquer this sin if you really, because you've been declared by God, justified. You're his righteousness on the earth. You don't have to give yourself over to this stuff anymore. And that the spiritual life can be produced in you by my Holy Spirit. And that you can live fully for me and not feed that outer man, but feed the inner man of Christ and the hope of glory that we have. You see, Satan loves to substitute. He tries to get us to substitute wrong things for what God's right is and tries to duplicate it. He's never created anything. And what he does, and one of the things I've learned in my life is when we don't recognize our sin or don't want to recognize it and we don't want to confess it, because maybe it's our pet sin. And one of the things is the first thing in dealing with sin is immediately agree with God and say, this is wrong. I confess it to you. That's the first thing. If we don't do that, then we're playing with sin. We're giving it a foothold and letting it take over our lives. And James says that in his first chapter. He says, when you are being tempted... It's so easy to tap your foot in the water and then go in a little further. That's playing with sin. And he said, what happens people don't understand is once they get in the water and the, the, the current gets a hold of them, it's driving them down the stream and it's taking you further than you ever wanted to be with that sin. And it's taking you to places that you never thought and you're going to hurt a mound of people because of that. And James has got it right. Immediately when that comes on you, you confess it. And be honest with yourself. that it's, and, and don't think that substitute is going to satisfy you. 
How many people do we know that give themselves to so many other things and they're unsatisfied at the end of their lives? And James says, you see, that's what happens. He gets you in just a little bit. You out fishermen, and what do they do? They bait that hook because they know they're going to lure that fish in. That's what he does. He lures us into the water. And then we get on the stream and we're downstream further than we ever wanted to be. Why? Because we've fallen and allowed Satan to grab hold of us and pull us in. And the New Testament speaks about that. There are times, yes, we fall into sin and mess up. But the real key is if we have this righteousness and we're feeding God's righteousness in our heart, we don't want to do that anymore. We know the terrible effects it has on us. And we want to live a whole life for God because we have this nature of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. Now ask yourself as a Christian, do I have the divine nature within me or am I pretending to be a Christian? Ask yourself, do I cultivate that divine nature in me by spending time in the Word and praying? Or am I feeding myself with the world's wisdom? Is there an unconfessed sin in my life that I kind of enjoy that sin and I haven't agreed with God yet that it's wrong? I need to agree with God and confess that sin and take action steps to keep me from getting involved with that sin. Do I allow my old sinful nature to control me and my desires to control me? Or do I allow God's rule in my life to control me? What about those temptations? Are there temptations that I like to play with and I should be really running from them and instead I'm feeding them? See, these are questions that we as Christians need to ask ourselves, especially when we're struggling or we keep on stumbling over the same sins. John doesn't say we have to have a perfect life. He says, but we need to show our righteousness in the battle of overcoming sin and living more and more like Christ in our lives. You know, it's interesting in the area of sport, we all know. Like right now, the playoffs are going on, and a good hitter hits maybe the ball one out of three times. That's not great, but that's great in our world. You think about with sin. You know, we don't always... I was reading about one of the uh, all-pro tackles, John Hanna, who played for years uh, in the NFL with the New England Patriots. And he said, you know, he told this to a bunch of kids that he was at an F Fellowship Christian Athletes uh, uh, convention. And he told the kids, he said, I'm a pro, all pro offensive uh, football player, on an offensive lineman. And he said, if I missed every block, <laughs> I would have probably been back in Alabama farming with my dad. But he said, I made most of the blocks. Not perfectly, but I made most of them. 
And I became an old pro because of that. And he said, there are times, yes, you will stumble and fall in sin. And that we have Jesus Christ, our advocate, who will forgive us. But we don't make excuses for sin. We honestly confess it. And with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, strive to change our behavior so that we can truly live in the righteousness that Christ has called us to. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that for our lives, that we can truly live for you and exhibit it in the way we live. We thank you so much that positionally we are already considered righteous in your eyes. But help us now with your Holy Spirit inside of us and abiding in you that we can live lives that are exemplary and that people can see your righteousness coming through us by the way we obey you, the way we treat others, and the way we live our lives. I thank you for these brothers and sisters who desire that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Enable us to do it because we know in our own strength we would fail. But thank you for your spirit, God, and the ability that we can abide in you forever. And it's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen. Let's rise and sing our closing song after the benediction. And now, God, who commanded the light to shine in darkness, shine in your hearts for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.